Well, good afternoon. It's good to see all of you here. Before we start our message for this afternoon, why don't we review a little bit about what we've learned so far this weekend. Again, this weekend, I'm sharing Christian life hacks, things to make the Christian life easier, more effective, and hopefully they'll be helpful to you as they have been to me. Our first meeting Friday night, I shared two different life hacks. The first one was what not to do. And what was that? Love not the world. That was what not to do. Don't love the world. And what was what we were supposed to do? Have the love of the Father in our hearts. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, shared that message that we shouldn't love the world. And we talked about some practical ways that, well, maybe we do love the world. And that's why Jesus has to tell us not to. This morning at, uh, it was almost the 11 o'clock hour, uh, we talked about two other things. The first one was what to do. What are we supposed to do? Give thanks. How often? All the time for, for everything. That's right. Give thanks all the time for everything. And that's harder than you might think. Um, as I look over this room, you know, there's a lot of things in probably each one of our lives that it's difficult to give thanks for, you know, but that's the command of God. Give thanks all the time for everything. And then what were we not supposed to do? Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Be anxious for what? Nothing. Don't be anxious anytime for anything. So two complete opposites. This afternoon, we're going to share one more life hack, only one from John chapter 17. My goal this afternoon is not only to share that one life hack, but we're going to paint a bigger picture. I'm extremely excited about this message because I believe John 17 is one of those chapters that all of us need to understand better. I know that I want to understand it better, and so we're going to um, try to make it through the entire chapter. Okay? Before we do, why don't we uh, bow our heads for prayer? I invite you to bow your heads for prayer with me. Dear God, I ask that the Holy Spirit will be present here. This is an important message, an important chapter, one of the prayers that you prayed for us, gathered right here now. I ask that the Bible will speak and that as we read through these verses of this prayer, each person here will learn something new about Jesus, something new about ourselves, and hopefully something that will make the Christian walk easier. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. John 17 is an important chapter. <clears throat> This is from a wonderful book called uh, Eighth Volume of the Testimonies, and I've put it up on the screen there. You can follow along. The instruction given me by one of authority is that we are to learn to the answer the prayer recorded in the 17th chapter of John. We are to make this prayer our what? Our first study. It's important. It's something we should study first. Every gospel minister 
Every medical missionary. Do we have any medical missionaries in the crowd today? You know, I'm not just talking medical students either. Every gospel minister, every medical missionary is to learn the science of this prayer. Prayer is a science, and this prayer specifically. My brethren and sisters, I ask you to heed these words and to bring to your study a calm, humble, contrite spirit and the healthy energies of a mind under the control of God. Those who fail to learn the lessons contained in this prayer are in danger of making one-sided developments which no future training will ever fully correct. Fascinating paragraph. John 17 is important, and I hope that we'll all learn more about it through our study today. So again, we're going to focus only on one life hack this afternoon. I'll point it out when we get there. But my goal is to paint a big picture of John 17. I want all of you to be able to read John 17 in the future and understand the outline of the entire chapter. John 17 has a lot of good information. In fact, a careful study, John 17 talks about justification, talks about sanctification, talks about glorification, unity. You all know John 17 talks about unity. Talks about perfection. John 17 talks about the great controversy, prayer, how to have a relationship with God, and many other huge concepts, all of which we could spend an entire sermon series on. So I apologize in advance. If you're the kind of person that likes picking one thing and studying it very carefully, this presentation may be a little bit frustrating for you because our goal is to paint a big picture. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to study the entire chapter verse by verse, but I'll be skipping over a lot of excellent information, and I realize that, and I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. What I like to do with this study is something we don't do very often as a church family, and that is I'd like to read Scripture together. What I've done on the screen is simply put the passages, every single passage from John 17 on the screen, and I'd invite all of us to read together. It helps save my voice. And I think there's some value to corporately reading Scripture together. So that's what we're going to do. Let's read verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Do you think it's important to study the Bible in context? It is, and that's especially true when the Bible itself calls attention to the context. It's fascinating to me that this passage, this prayer of Christ in John 17, which, as many of you know, is a call for unity in several places, comes in a very specific context. If you look at John chapter 16, the end of the chapter, Jesus has just told the disciples about what's going to happen to them. And are they going to be unified? No. In fact, they're going to be scattered. Jesus tells them, you're all going to go this way, that way, and you know, you're all going to leave me. They're going to be scattered. That's fascinating to me. There's a couple lessons from that, but at least one of them is that this prayer of Christ's is prophetic. It's not looking at only at the immediate circumstances that Christ is facing, but he's looking to the future. There's a few interesting lessons from this verse as well that I invite you to study further, and that is lessons on prayer. How, what position is Jesus in when he's praying? He's not even standing. He's just he's walking by the way with the disciples, isn't he? And not only that, he's lifting up his eyes to heaven. You know, there's at least seven different positions of prayer 
that you find Jesus praying in in the Gospels, and it's a very fascinating study. I invite you to study that further. The rest of this verse we're going to study along with verse 5. Let's go on to verse 2. Ready? As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. What do you think the key word is in this text? It's the glory of God to give, we're told. Uh, by the spirit of prophecy. And perhaps the ultimate expression of what God can give is to give eternal life. I mean, what greater gift could God give someone but an eternity of bliss? The first part of this verse is the mechanism whereby Jesus gives eternal life. Do you see that in the verse? That thou hast, thou hast given him power over all flesh. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time studying this, but I'd invite each of you to read Romans chapter 8, especially verses 1 through 9, about the word flesh. There you'll find that the flesh and the spirit are opposites. We're to, you know, live, we're not to live according to the flesh, we're to live according to the spirit. The word flesh doesn't only refer to humans, it refers to sinful humanity, our carnal flesh, it's frequently translated. And this verse tells us that Jesus has power over how much flesh? All flesh. There are two big salvation concepts here. The first is that God gave Jesus control over his own flesh. Jesus was the perfect human. And because of that, he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for you and I. But not only that, God has given Jesus control over your flesh. And with your consent, Jesus can so identify himself with your thoughts, your aims, that even your thoughts will be brought into captivity to the will of God. That's the message of this verse. And that is the mechanism. Both of those things together are the mechanism whereby Jesus brings eternal life. Verse 3, reading together. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Do you see that this verse gives the definition of eternal life? I had a patient at uh, UC Davis, which is where I did residency, who told me that this was his favorite verse. He was facing a, uh, a likely death in the very near future, and he gave me some information about this verse that I thought was interesting, and I'd like to share it with you. This was his reasoning process as he uh, read this verse. This verse says the definition of eternal life is to what? To know God. And he said, as he thought about that, he said, you know, to know God is to love him. And I think that's true. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. As we truly know God, as we learn more about him, we're led to love him more and more, aren't we? And then he said, you know, to love God is to serve him. And I think that's true too. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, if we truly love God, we will serve him. And I hadn't thought about the end to this. He said, to serve God is to be like him because God is a God of service. As God leads us into such a love relationship with him that we serve God with all of our heart and we serve others the same way God would have us. That is to be like God and that is the essence of eternal life. Heaven can begin here and of course continue in the hereafter. Verse 4, 
I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou hast given me to do. So there's two phrases in this verse, right? Do you think they're related or unrelated? Obviously, I think they're related. I wouldn't have asked the question. If the question is, how did Jesus glorify God? What's the answer according to this verse? By finishing the work that he gave us to do. If I ask the question, how are you to glorify God? What do you think the answer is? The same answer, don't you think? It's by finishing the work that God gives us to do. Now, notice it's the finishing of the work that brings glory to God. Now, I think it's true that each one of us, as we surrender our lives to God, can glorify God all the way along. But Jesus said it's the bringing to completion, the perfecting, the finishing of the work that brings most glory to God. And what was Jesus referring to, do you believe? In this immediate context, Jesus was looking at the the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he did say, it is finished. Verse 5 is very similar to verse 1. Let's read it together. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Very similar to verse 1, and both of these verses are similar to John 12, 28. Now, you probably already know, you've heard the idea that God's glory is his, is his character. Yeah. And Jesus is asking that God will glorify himself through Christ, that God will give Christ glory. This afternoon, I want you, or this evening, I want you to read John 12, 28 through 33, and John 16, 32 through 33, and convince yourself that what I'm about to tell you is true. Jesus' prayer for glory in this context, Jesus' prayer that God's character would be more fully known, in this context is referring to the events immediately to follow. Jesus is talking about the events of the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross, because truly that is the spot where God's character was most fully known. So you can read John 12, 28 through 33, and the end of John chapter 16, and see what events Christ is referring to when he talks about his glory here at the end of his ministry. Let's summarize now, because again, what we're going to be doing is building a big picture of John chapter 17. Big picture verses 1 through 5 are talking about, Jesus talks about his own ministry. If you read those verses, he's talking about himself, the work that he's finished, etc. I'm going to be building this summary as we go through. Verse 6, let's read together. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Do you see we're transitioning to a different subject now? Who are we talking about? The disciples, that's right. And this is as good a place as any to discuss a central theme of John 17. And that is the idea that God gave certain people to Christ. Do you see that in the verse? says it several times. It also said that back in verse 2. It mentions it several times in verse 9 through 12, verse 24, and a few others allude to it. It sounds like only some people are sharers in the grace of God, doesn't it? Can you see how someone would read that verse and think that? Predestination. But let's examine it a little bit more closely. Now, it does seem, based on this verse, that a certain group of people were predestined by God to be Christ's disciples. You think that might be a fair statement? Does that mean that they were all automatically saved? Look at verse 12. Who does verse 12 talk about? 
It mentions someone who wasn't saved who was part of that group. Does this mean that everybody else who wasn't part of this group was lost? No, certainly not. In fact, Christ tells the disciples what their job is. What it does mean is that God chose a specific group of people to receive an extra manifestation of his character. And you know, God has always done that through history. You know, we think of Noah, Abraham, the uh, children of Israel, Judah, the disciples, and do you think it might be true again today? You know, according to Revelation, there's a certain group of people who receive an extra manifestation of the glory of God. They understand his character more. And their role in turn is to tell it to the world. Verse 7 and 8. We'll read them together. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Notice that there's a parallel construction here. In fact, John 17 has at least four chiasms that I've been able to find. I'll show you at least one of them coming up here. Here's a parallel construction. You see how the disciples have kept thy word and they've given thy word, and that they receive some understanding based on that. Jesus is emphasizing the fact that there's a prerequisite to understand the close connection between earthly things and heavenly things. Have you ever run across someone that you're trying to witness to them, you're trying to reach them, and they just don't seem to get it? They just don't seem to understand that there's any greater reality out there. They just they don't see spiritual things. They just don't seem to understand them, and it's tough to reach them. These verses explain why. There is a prerequisite to understanding those kind of things. And what is that? Well, keeping Christ's word and receiving Christ's word. In a word, it's obedience. This agrees with what Peter said in Acts chapter 5, verse 32. The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey God. You know, why would God give information to someone who wouldn't make good use of it? Why would God want to share information with someone that would simply increase their misery in the lake of fire? God doesn't like that. The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey God. Verse 9 and 10. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. How is Christ glorified in his disciples? Well, we talked about it a few verses back. It's the same way that God was glorified in Christ. It's as we manifest the character of Christ that we bring glory to him. Understanding how our character can give glory to Jesus makes sense of the following quotation. This is uh, Desire of Ages, page uh, 671. This is chapter 73. It's the chapter discussing the prayer in John chapter 17. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. I highly recommend that all of you read chapter 73 that goes over this prayer in John 17. So let's summarize again, taking a step back. The first five verses talked about Jesus. Jesus talked about his own ministry. The next five verses, Jesus has talked predominantly about the disciples and their ministry. Verse 11 and the first part of 13. Ready? And now I am no more in the world... But these are in the world. 
unto thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee. This is the first of those chiasms. Jesus now speaks of a time of separation. Where is he going? He's going to be with God. Um, His disciples will unfortunately still be in this world. Before this, Jesus bore the brunt of Satan's assaults against the church, and he personally guided and directed the disciples. But now that his personal presence is going to be removed, he prays that God himself will keep them, that is, preserve them, defend them, sustain them in trials, and save them from apostasy. So summarizing, verse 11 through 13, the first part of the verse, Jesus says he's going back to be with God. It's Jesus' ascension. We've talked about Jesus' ministry, the disciples' ministry, and now... Jesus is going back to heaven. This is kind of a side note, the last part of verse 13. Read with me. And these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Does God want us to be happy? You know, he does. And in this verse, he gives us the answer of how to be happy. How can you be happy according to this verse? What's the mechanism of happiness? Jesus' words, these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Uh, It was probably about a month ago, I woke up in the morning, and uh, for whatever reason, I think Michael, my one-year-old, woke up with a dirty diaper or something, so I got up, I changed him, and it was about 4.30, I couldn't go back to sleep. And so that particular morning, I was able to, you know, spend quite some time reading the Bible. And I think it was the next morning... I didn't wake up early. Um, I kind of did what some of you are doing right now. And uh, I won't call names. And uh, as I kind of, my alarm went off, I kind of opened one eye. And as I usually do, I pulled up my cell phone. I saw how cold it was going to be to decide what I was going to wear. And then I checked my email. And from there, I think I got on Facebook. And it was all downhill from there. Um, you know, someone had sent a nice video of some cat doing some silly thing or, you know, whatever. And so it was probably 15, 20 minutes. I was lying there in bed just, you know, using my smartphone. And then I realized I've got to get up. I've got to go. So I jumped up, went to the shower. You know, I think I made it out of the house. Maybe I prayed, but I don't think I spent any time reading God's word. Which one of those days do you think I was happier? You know, it's obvious. It was the first day. You know, what idiots we must be because Jesus tells us exactly how to be happy and we don't take him up on it. I mean, how dumb can humans get? But I I class myself in that group. I want to be happy, though. Don't you want to be happy? Jesus tells us how to be happy. Verse 14 and 16 I've put together. This is the second of those chiasms that I told you about. Let's read them. I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So the focus of this section is on the hatred of the world for Christ's disciples. 
Why does the world hate Christ's disciples? Because they're not of the world. Exactly right. What's the positive side of this, though? Do you see from this passage that they are not of the world just like Christ was not of the world? Would you like Jesus to be able to say that about you? You know, they're like Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? But it also means that the world is going to hate them. You know, this is kind of a side note as well. You've all heard the phrase, we need to be in the world but not of the world. Right? You've heard that? Frequently when people use that phrase, what they mean is that we need to become so close to like the world that we can evangelize them. You know what I mean? We need to, I don't know, dress like them. We need to... Uh, eat like them, we need to play music in church just like they might be used to listening to other times. Whatever it is, we need to become close to the world, but we'll still not be of the world. Right? Well, this is where that phrase comes from. Do you see from this passage that the opposite is what Jesus was actually talking about? We're in the world, but not of the world, and the world just hates us because (laughs) we're not of the world. Now, I'm not saying that we should be purposely weird. You could make a study from some of Paul's writings, for instance, about how we do need to draw close to the world. But that's, use a different phrase to describe it, because when you say in the world but not of the world, you're talking about how the world might hate you because you're like Jesus. That's where the phrase comes from. Uh, The verse right in the middle here is verse 15. Let's read that verse together. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil one. Now this is a fascinating verse to me. This, the thing that's fascinating about this verse, only happens two times in the entire Bible. Both those times are in a prayer by Christ, and in fact, both of them are in John 17. How many of you have ever prayed like this? And by like this, I mean, how many of you have ever got down on your knees and you're praying and and you're telling Jesus what it is you're not praying for? Have you ever done that? Dear God, today I'm praying for the President of the United States, but I'm not praying for the Senate. Or, you know, whatever it is. You're telling God, I'm praying for this, but I'm not praying for this other thing. Have you ever done that? I never have. But Jesus does it twice, just in this one chapter. Why would Jesus need to do that? Why would Jesus need to tell God what it is he's not praying for? Well, I think the answer is in the immediate context. We just read the verses before and after this, and the disciples of Christ, as we discussed, have achieved something. What is it they've achieved? They are so much like Christ that the world hates them, and it seems only natural that God would come and rescue the disciples of Christ. Doesn't it seem logical that if the disciples of Christ are like Christ and the world hates them, well, it must be time to go and bring them to heaven. But Jesus doesn't pray for that. In fact, he tells God, I'm not praying for that because as we'll see in the rest of the prayer, there are some things that have to happen first. Summarizing the first five verses, Jesus prayed about his own ministry. The next five verses, verses 6 through 10, Jesus talked about the disciples and their ministry. And then in verse 11 through 13, Jesus goes back to heaven to be with God. Verse, uh, the end of verse 13 through verse 16, the disciples don't get to go to heaven. In fact, they stay behind and there is a time of persecution. It's 
It's about now in the sermon that those of you who've studied Daniel chapter 7, for instance, should start to see some patterns. Verse 17, read with me. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This is an incredibly wonderful short verse. My um, father-in-law taught me a very simple way to give a Bible study one time. You just read a verse, and then you ask whoever you're studying with some questions based on the verse that they can easily answer. And, you know, they get the right answer because they can read it right there in the scriptures, and you just gave a Bible study. It's really not that complex. Let's ask some questions based on this verse. Does Jesus want his disciples to be sanctified? Yes. Yes, and in fact, Jesus intercedes for that. Can people be sanctified in just any old way, or is there one mechanism that applies to everybody? Well, clearly the latter, although maybe the manifestations are different. Now, what is the mechanism of sanctification? Truth. truth. Whose truth? God's truth. And what is truth, according to this verse? God's word is truth. Now, why is that? Well, I'm sure you all have heard sermons about this. God's word is creative. Our word is descriptive, but God's word is creative. The Bible says, you remember Isaiah 55, 11, it accomplishes that which he says. So the obvious example is creation. God says, let there be light. Boom, there's light. Because God's word is creative. Even if it wasn't so, the moment he said it, it becomes so because God's word is true. For a longer study of this concept, I highly recommend that book, Lessons on Faith by Jones and Wagner. The entire first half of the book is a long exposition of this concept that God's word is truth. It's creative. Let's link those two thoughts from this verse. First thought, we're sanctified through the truth. And the second thought is God's word is truth. So how are we sanctified? We are sanctified by exercising faith in the promises of God's word. Promises such as, James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, that's a promise. Jude 1, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Philippians 4, 13, I can do how many things? All things through Christ which strengthens me. You know, we are sanctified by exercising faith in the promises of God's word. We read this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray God that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. That is a promise of God's word. It's thus that the book Steps to Christ tells us, put away the thought that the promises of God are not for you. They are for you. And that is the mechanism of sanctification. Verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. This verse is a continuation of the similarities between Christ and his followers. And I think it should elevate our ideas about Christian witnessing to realize that our ministry is simply a continuation of Christ's. I haven't been here at Advent Hope for a while, but I'm going to make some guesses just based on my short observation here. And that is that this is a problem in your church just like it is in mine. Every now and then, at my church, uh, we'll have some outreach. And, you know, we'll go door to door, whatever it is, and um, 
try to reach out to some of the people in our neighborhood. And, you know, even myself, uh, I go when I think I'm able to, when I think it's important. What would it be like if next time Advent Hope was doing outreach, if Jesus Christ himself in the flesh appeared at your podium and, you know, kind of stood here and said in a gentle manner, hey guys, um, this afternoon I'm going to go out to, uh, to Loma Linda and knock on some doors and offer to pray with people and try to meet their needs. Anyone want to go with me? Would you respond differently? If Jesus Christ personally was inviting you to go door to door. Because friends, that's really the way it is. That's really the way it is. Our ministry is simply a continuation of the ministry of Christ and his presence goes with us on those errands. Verse 19. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Did Jesus need sanctification? It's an amazing truth of Scripture. Be very careful how you describe this. Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9 explains this verse. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Did Jesus Christ ever sin? No. Never give anyone that idea. But did he learn obedience? Yes, he did. The exact same way that you and I must learn obedience. Did Jesus require sanctification? Yes, he did. The same way you and I require sanctification. That's an amazing truth of Scripture, and be very careful how you describe it, because it's easy to misunderstand. But that's an amazing truth. To what amazing depths the Son of God stooped to become our example. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, the Gospel of John was, as you probably know, was written after the other Gospels. It was written for a later generation of believers. And therefore, several verses are included that I think speak to each one of us. You know, according to this verse, Jesus prayed for you. Are you one of those who have believed based on the word of those who saw? You know, each one of us are. Jesus prayed for you and me individually. I believe he thought of us during this prayer. Let's summarize. Again, the first five verses, Jesus talked about his own ministry. The next five verses, he talked about the disciples and their ministry. Then Jesus went back to heaven, but the disciples didn't get to go. In fact, there was a time of persecution. Verse 17 through 20, first of all, talks a lot about sanctification, doesn't it? And then there's a transition here in verse 20 to later generations of believers. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Verse 21, we're getting to the heart of it. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, 
that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. What is Jesus' prayer for you and I? That we would be one. Now, what does it mean to be one? Let's say that we hire some fancy church growth, church growth expert or something to come to Advent Hope and figure out how it is that you all need to be unified more. Because Jesus wants this church to be unified. Well, let's, let's develop some metrics and we'll set some goals for Advent Hope. According to this verse, what is the measuring stick or the metric by which you decide whether or not you're unified? What's the measure of unity? It's the very unity that exists within the Godhead itself. How unified is that? Is Advent Hope unified? By that measuring stick? My church isn't. I pray that this church will be. Looking ahead to verse 23, the chain is as follows. God in Christ and Christ in us. And this is the way that unity happens. Now what's the purpose of unity according to this verse? It's witnessing, isn't it? Yeah. The purpose of church unity is witnessing. It has nothing to do with decreasing the number of arguments on board meetings, although that's helpful. The purpose of church unity is so the world will believe something. Unity is tied to witnessing. Here we come to uh, our life hack. Um, I didn't include this slide, so I'm going to write down, I'm going to ask you to write down some verses if you want to study this further. Ask the question, how was God in Christ? Because this verse tells us that we need to be unified. And if you put this verse and verse 23 together, the way we need to be unified with each other is to have Christ in us exactly the same way God was in Christ. So ask yourself the question, how was God in Christ? And here's some verses for you to write down if you're taking notes. John 5, verse 30. John 8, verse 26 and 28. John 12, verse 50. John 14, verse 10. Most of these verses are probably familiar to you. They're the verses where Jesus says, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. The words that I speak to you are not mine, but his that sent me. If you put them together, Jesus did nothing, spoke nothing, heard nothing, except God's express will for him at that moment. What about you? What about me? Can we say that? Is that the way Christ is in us? It's exactly this way that we are to have Christ within the hope of glory. Philippians 2, verse 5, Colossians 1, 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery of the gospel. Christ in us, exactly the same way God was in Christ. We'll come back to that at the end. Verse 22, read with me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus hammers it home again. He wants us to be one. What glory had God given Christ? Well, eventually, of course, in heaven, all the glory of heaven will be Christ's. 
But at the time Jesus prayed this prayer, what glory did he have? Say again. At his baptism, he was glorified. You know, what glory surrounded the poor Galilean? You know, we already said Christ's glory is his character. As Jesus followed God's plan exactly, a beautiful character was revealed more and more as Satan's attacks were sequentially defeated. The ultimate expression of this, of course, was the cross. It is this glory, this complete surrender to God's will, which develops a beautiful character that God wishes to give to every follower of Christ. It's that character, and it's developed by complete surrender to God. God in Christ was glorious, and Christ in us will be glorious. And one specific outgrowth of this is unity, according to this verse. So in this verse, we have the mechanism of unity described. It's not that we need to develop more focus groups so that we can figure out what our disagreements are and then compromise to develop a consensus. The mechanism of unity for any group, this group, my church back in Tennessee, the mechanism of unity is Christ in each person within the group. It's developed not so much here on Sabbath as it is every day during the week as we spend time in our, our personal walk with Christ, our devotional walk. That's where the unity of a group of believers is developed. Summarizing verse 21 and 22, first five verses, Jesus talked about his ministry. Next five verses, Jesus talked about the disciples and their ministry. And then Jesus goes back to heaven in verse 11. Verse 13 through 16, the disciples stay behind, and in fact, there's a time of persecution. Verse 17 starts talking about sanctification. In verse 20, there is a transition to later generations of believers. In that context, Jesus talks about unity, and he gives the mechanism whereby his church may be unified. Verse 23, read with me. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. This verse ties unity to a specific outcome. God in Christ and Christ in us leads to what? Christian perfection. I don't shy away from using the term because I believe it's biblical, and that's what the Bible teaches right here. Now, some of your Bibles, if you have a more modern translation, might dumb this down to perfect unity, and that's true too. Uh, the fact is, it's talking about both Christian perfection and perfect unity. They're the same thing, essentially. They go together. Now, notice perfection is not perfectionism. Uh, Steps to Christ, chapter 8, explains it very well. It's not navel-gazing. We're not look, all looking at our own belly buttons trying to figure out whether or not we're perfect. In fact, Job 9.21 says, even if you were, you wouldn't know. Perfection doesn't come from legalism, but perfection does lead to two results. The focus of the character development of Christ's followers has nothing to do with them. The, the two results here... Number one, the world is convinced of two things. The unity of the church convinces them that the mission of Christ was true. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Christ was heaven-ordained. But beyond this, that was verse 21 as well. Verse 23 takes it one step further. The perfection of a unified group of believers at the end of time convinces the world that this group, these are the ones that are loved by heaven. And then the entire world has a decision to make. For or against Christ in the person of his followers. Summarizing verse 23, it talks about perfection. And as you might guess, perfection in a unified group of believers leads directly to verse 24. Read with me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, speaking as one who has already been glorified, that was back in verse 12 and 13, tells God that he wills that his disciples be with him in heaven too. Christ's object lessons, verse 69, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. First five verses, Jesus talked about himself, his ministry here on this planet. The next five verses, 6 through 10, Jesus talked about the disciples' ministry. And then in verse 11 through 13, Jesus goes back to heaven. Verse uh, 14 through 16, the disciples don't get to go back to heaven at that time. In fact, they stay behind and there's a time of persecution. The world hates them. Verse 17 through 20 talks about sanctification and then verse 20, there is a transition. John specifically says that this, or Jesus specifically says this prayer of his is not only for the disciples in front of him, but he extends this prayer to those living all the way down to the end of time. Verse 21, we sometimes think of this entire prayer as being about unity, but it isn't until verse 21, 22, and 23 that Jesus really starts talking about unity in earnest. He not only talks about unity he desires that his church down at the end of time be unified and he tells us how it is we are to be unified he gives us a measure of unity so we'll know when we've arrived and we're not there yet unity when achieved leads directly to a very specific result and jesus says that is the perfection of the character of his followers that's verse 23, and that leads immediately to verse 24. Jesus says, I will also that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Translation. The last two verses are kind of the denouement of the prayer. It's almost as if Jesus' thoughts returned to the disciples in front of him. His thoughts have reached far into the future, to future generations of believers, and in fact to a time when those future generations of believers will come to heaven to be with him. And now he thinks about his disciples again. They're not ready for the scenes that are about to await them. But he knows that discouraged people are not strong. And he ends with thoughts of love and assurance. Read with me verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it 
that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Only one life hack this afternoon. I hope you've seen a big picture of John 17. It's a prophetic prayer of Christ. It outlines huge themes in the great controversy. And it is a prayer Jesus prayed specifically for you. He prayed for this group. The only life hack I want you to remember from, the only Christian life hack I want you to remember from this is the mechanism whereby unity may be achieved. The secret is Christ in you in exactly the same way God was in Christ. That's the secret to pretty much everything in the Christian life. Read those passages from John where Jesus explains how it was that God spoke through him, that God performed miracles through him, that God was in him. Because these passages are for you. These passages explain how Christ wants to live through your life. There's one final quote that I'll leave you with here. Adrian and I talked this afternoon about a lot of things, a lot of the history that uh, exists in this place in Loma Linda back many years and some of the history that he and I have been able to share together and many of uh, you in the audience and I have been able to share together. And I think this passage talking about John 17 uh, is encouraging to me as we face momentous times ahead of us. This is uh, from the sixth volume of the Testimonies, uh, page 401. As trials thicken around us, both separation and unity will be seen in our ranks. Some will, in times of real peril, make it manifest that they have not built upon the solid rock. But, on the other hand, when the storm of persecution really breaks upon us, the true sheep will hear the true shepherd's voice. Self-denying efforts will be put forth to save the lost, and many who have strayed from the fold will come back. The people of God will draw together and present to the enemy a united front. Strife for supremacy will cease. There will be no disputing as to who shall be accounted greatest. We began this talk by saying we need to answer the prayer of Christ. Well, here's the answer of how that will be done. Thus will be answered the prayer of Christ uttered just before his humiliation and death, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The love of Christ, the love of our brethren, will testify to the world that we have been with Jesus and learned of him. Then will the message of the third angel swell to a loud cry, and the whole earth will be lightened with the glory of the Lord. Friends, John 17 has huge lessons. We've been instructed to answer this prayer of Christ, and this is how it can be done. Christian life hack number three, Christ in you in exactly the same way that God was in Christ. It's the secret to pretty much everything in the Christian walk. It will answer the prayer of Christ in John 17, and it will bring to fulfillment 
the message of the third angel. It will bring the loud cry, and you and I have the opportunity to be part of that. Let us pray. I invite you to kneel if you're able where you are. Dear God, we are not unified. We confess that there exists in each one of our hearts pride, desire for supremacy. There exist things that pull us. We, we do love the world in certain ways and probably each one of us in a different way. Dear God, we need the love that you exemplify in your character in our hearts. Please create in us, each one of us, a new heart. Dear God, help us to give thanks to you regardless of the circumstances which surround us. Help us to trust in you so completely and be so surrendered to your will and realize that you mean good for us, that we will not worry about anything. Finally, I pray that each person here will in a very practical way experience Christ within the hope of glory in exactly the same way and in the same measure that God was in Christ when he was here on this planet. We know that you promised to do these things for us, and each of us now, we surrender our lives to you, and I ask that the Holy Spirit will go with us from this place and will confirm that surrender. Speak to us every moment of every day. Prompt us with the words that you want us to speak, just like you prompted Christ and gave him the words to speak. Tell us where to go. Help us in the decisions that each one of us have to make to seek first your kingdom and your glory. Surrender our wills and then claim the promise that you'll make straight paths before our feet. We thank you for this special time together, and we thank you for the message of John chapter 17. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.